I'm afraid that I have uh, come off as being old and crusty in this conversation so far. I haven't helped at that, actually. I should probably tell you about my new tattoos so that we can make it not seem like I'm an old person. Yeah. Are, are tattoos young yeah. and hip still? Oh, man. <laughs> giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, April 10th, 2013. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chad Fowler. Hey, Chad. Hello, Ben. How's it going? It's going so well. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Great. Uh, so how are you liking Berlin? Berlin is one of those cities where um, it's. I feel like something bad is going to happen because, like every passing day, I think, "Oh my god, I love this!" And at some point, I should stop feeling that way <laughs> about a new place. But yeah, it's amazing. It's it's great. Like from a culture perspective, it's mm. a beautiful city. There's an amazing amount of good food. It's just an awesome place. Yeah, I, I've been to Berlin a couple times and really loved it each time. So I, I second that. Uh, were you here for a holiday or uh, I was there twice for holiday and uh, like the the history in the city blows me away it's like there's people I, I, things I didn't realize are like these are scorch marks on these columns because bombs dropped in this square not too long ago yeah the other day uh, in fact I guess a week ago uh, I had someone late for an appointment with me because they shut down the trains because they discovered a bomb from World War II Wow, and like, it was a live bomb that could explode, so they had to dig it up. Yeah, and and there's like bullet pock marks on like buildings that people are using currently. Right, those might be current or, or uh, recent, though. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I've heard that the the Berlin mayor says that uh, Berlin is poor but sexy. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's it's also dirty and beautiful at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you move there to work with. Um, Six Wunderkinder? Is that how I would say that? Uh, you could. Uh-huh. Uh, as an American, <laughs> you might just say Six Wunderkinder or Zex Wunderkinder. Ah, Zex. Okay. Yes. So are, are you learning German? Uh, I thought that I would know quite a bit by now. I've been here for two months or so, uh-huh. but I've been so busy learning my job that I haven't learned enough German. But my, my desire is to learn it and... Uh, yeah, certainly I've been learning words, but I couldn't really say much of interest right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so my my wife is in the Goethe Institute, though. I'm totally jealous about that. That's like an awesome, intensive, uh, almost full-time German language and cultural program. She ah. just started two weeks ago. So she's leaving you behind. Yes, I'm going to be jealous of that. But she she also promises to teach me. Well, that's good. There's also, from what I found, no shortage of English speakers. No, that that's kind of frustrating, though. Yeah. Uh, from from what I hear, everyone who tries to learn German in Berlin is disappointed by everyone responding to them in English when they try. Totally. Yeah. I had that problem in India, too. We uh, learned Hindi in India, and because I was obviously not Indian, especially when people saw me, they would immediately respond in, uh, in English, mm-hmm. even if I spoke Hindi to them. Yeah. To me, that, that that's like the bar... I was I was trying to speak Spanish in um, Buenos Aires, and that was the bar to me. I was like, how good is my Spanish? Is when I try in Spanish, do they respond in English, or will they stay in Spanish? Yeah, although when you're in a place where you don't look like a native, mm. then I, I I think people's brains automatically filter based on what they expect to hear, and right. you could speak to them in the language they know, and they can't recognize anything, even if it's perfect. <laughs> At least that's that's my excuse. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll use that excuse too. That sounds great. So you you changed jobs recently. Yes. Now, so what does a CTO? So you're you're CTO at uh, Zex Wunderkinder. <laughs> That's right. And so what does a CTO get asked in interviews? Uh, it depends. It, it, like the job of CTO is so different depending on the company you're in mm-hmm. that uh, there's no general way to answer that. Um, when I was at Living Social. At the end, I was essentially playing the role of CTO. We also had a CTO's co-founder, Aaron Battalion, mm. but I had taken over most of his kind of bigger company management responsibilities. And at Living Social, my job as kind of pseudo-CTO, I was called uh, Senior Vice President of Technology, was like budgets and organizational stuff. You know, um, it, There was no coding involved. 
And at Sex Wonderkinder, we're a smaller company, and the CTO actually has to be able to like to literally be the chief technologist to fix the hard problems or to um, you know figure out how to architect systems that will scale that sort of thing. So, in my interview. I don't even actually remember the interview part. I know at one point the entire company was asking me questions at once, which mm-hmm. is about 30 people. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of it was just like about preferences and technology. I think in, in, a, in an interview, you can get a lot about someone without actually grilling them on any specific topics. Sure. Did, did you miss writing code day to day? Desperately. Social? Yes, mm-hmm. desperately. Mm-hmm. Almost every day. And toward the end, I, uh, I actually remember tweeting something at one point I was walking by the desks of some of the people on my team seeing their green their black terminal screens with the green text and I felt really jealous like mm. that's when I knew it's probably time to get back to it yeah be making stuff right it always seemed to me that like if when you step away from writing actual code day to day and you're managing developers like you've begun the slide into you don't actually know what's going on anymore yeah kind of Although, and I definitely had some anxiety about that coming to Berlin for this job because mm-hmm. I knew that there were some hard technical things that I, like specifically, I needed to try and solve, and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, but I think it's kind of probably like language, or you know, as they always say about riding a bike, that there are there are things that get ingrained in you as a developer, and you may forget the tactical stuff, but you don't forget the important stuff. So, sure. in fact, the same is true of like musical instruments. Like a couple of years ago, I started playing saxophone again after many years, ah. and I used to play professionally. And what I found was, I sounded really good as soon as I picked up the instrument, but I couldn't play fast, and you know, I would, I couldn't play very cleanly, but I still sounded like someone who was a professional saxophone player hmm. if I was doing something that I was technically capable of doing at the time. You know? Right. So some of like the, the nitty-gritty technical skills fade away, but your, your fundamental understanding is still there. Yeah, exactly. And, and you forget stuff in the development world, like uh, you know, what the argument syntax for rake changed to in 0.7 plus or whatever you know, when he changed it. So like, I would regress to Ruby 1.6 stuff and <laughs> Ruby 1.8 stuff. Um, and of course, like... I, I never used the Rails asset pipeline because I wasn't programming during the time that that came out and, and everyone started using it. Right. As an example. Hmm. So you just mentioned Ruby 1.6. So you were on the sort of the, the bleeding edge of the Ruby world. Like you were there really early on. Yeah, I was one of those people that was doing it when like the IRC channel on Freenode, which was not called Freenode at the time, can't remember what it was called, but uh, it had 12 people in it regularly. And now it's always 300, 400 people. Last time I checked, um, the first Ruby conference was 34 people. That was the official Ruby conference. Wow. Um, So, yeah, it was very early. Everything was broken. And, (laughs) you know, any library you might need didn't necessarily exist. And if it did, you might not be able to figure out how to install it, that kind of stuff. Hmm. What... What indicated to you that this was something worth sticking with then if everything was broken? Uh, it, it was basically my incredible ability to see into the future and know that like Rails was going to get created and there was going to be an industry around this thing. Huh. Um, no, I just, I, in fact, I thought it was a stupid hobby. Hmm. However, the other people that were doing it attracted me to it. And I don't mean like I followed them there. I, I actually stumbled upon it one day on my regular Saturday morning learn a language session. And I got on IRC and I met people like David Allen Black and uh, and Dave Thomas of the Pragmatic Programmers. And those were the people doing it. And those were the people like going through all the pain that I was going through of the early days of the language and the early days of the ecosystem. Rich Comer, some really brilliant people back then. Um, that are still around. There's a lot more brilliant people now, but uh, I figured this would be a good thing to play with, uh, and and it's kind of like uncharted territory. Like there was no package management system, so you could build that. There was no RSS library, so you could be the one that builds that, mm. and people start using it. 
So it was really rewarding from that perspective to build out a new ecosystem um, almost from scratch you get or to, to be part of that. You get to reinvent all your own wheels. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, some of the wheels were hadn't really even been invented yet. So it was like fresh ground to, I guess that's, that is reinventing the wheel anyway, but it's fresh ground to try some, a new approach at an old problem. Hmm. It's interesting that you say that it was some of the people that, that drew you to the language. It's almost like a startup in that way. Like the, the early hires are what are bringing in the other people. Yeah. And really the, the English speaking Ruby community back then was no larger than sex Wunderkinder. Really. I mean, <laughs> It kind of was, but the core of it wasn't. So, you know, if I was attracted here to work with, with these guys, then it certainly makes sense that I'd be attracted to a language to work with the people that were doing it when, when the community was that close. Hmm. It's, it's also interesting. That it could have gone the other way where, like, a couple really bad people could have poisoned the trajectory of the language. Yeah, they started to at certain points. Hmm. Um, and Or at least we worried you know, and, and back then it was really like someone would get on the mailing list and we would all talk about, oh, no, this person's going to ruin it. <laughs> um, I remember one such conversation I had with Dave Thomas where I was talking about a specific person that was really kind of like trolling. And he said something to the effect of like, these are the, the things that strengthen the antibodies of the, <laughs> the community, perhaps. Hmm. Um, now, the funny thing is, that's a slippery slope, because you also talk about like the corporate antibodies that reject change, so you have to be careful, I guess, when, mm. when you start feeling that way. Though, looking back on these particular people I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure that they were, where they were legitimate, legitimately uh, troublemakers. <laughs> How long have you been using Ruby? I remember you from like 2009, I think it was, when you... You did a great job of pitching your, your talk for RailsConf with well, a specialized video. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you remember that. That was, that was kind of a, a big moment for me. That was my first conference talk, which was really exciting. Well, you, the way that you did the, the pitch was remarkable enough that uh, I remember it now. Like if, anyone, if only anyone, everyone would go to that much trouble. <laughs> awesome. To, that, that's great. And that's, that was exactly my goal was just to, to stand out enough that it was memorable. Yeah, and not only that, it was like you—you you clearly were in love with the idea, and—and hmm. and not just the idea of speaking at the conference, but the idea of your talk, right? And you cared enough to try to prove to us that you were going to do a good job, even though you'd never done it before. And I thought, I don't even care if this sucks; he's going to be so excited, people are going to like it. And as like Hillary Mason said recently in a blog post, that teaching is entertainment uh, where mm. it's public speaking should be entertainment. Oh, I need to read that. That's right. My... Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. Like, of course you're going to teach, but if you're entertaining while you do it, it's more likely you're actually going to reach someone. So totally. Uh, One of my first like rules that, that of good, my first rule of speaking is don't be boring. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. As like more important than almost anything else. But that's, that's, Have you done a lot of uh, conference speaking since then? Uh, yeah, it's kind of become a thing, I guess. Um, I've done quite a bit of it for ThoughtBot, so it's it's all over the place, and it's been a blast. And that was kind of like the kickoff. Like having the the RailsConf name, I think, was helped me get the next few, and from there, it sort of just built. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I never spoke at RailsConf other than introducing it. Mm. Uh, oh no, no, I did actually in two thousand. 10, I guess. I spoke at RailsConf, which is the conference that I started. And I spoke there in the vendor track because my company paid so I could have a spot to speak. Hmm. Which I thought was kind of ironic. Right, exactly. Start a conference and then pay to speak at it. (laughs) That'll teach you. Yeah, next time I won't start any conferences. So, Do you think you're going to find another Ruby, like a language where you get in really early and help push the adoption, or is that a, a younger man's game? Uh, maybe, maybe it is the latter. I don't know. Um, it's not that I don't want to try something new, but my focus is very different these days than it was then. Like Back then, I had a lot of, of fun playing with esoteric languages and you know, stuff like Befunge. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Mm-mm. Oh, you should look it up. It's B-E-F-U-N-G-E. Okay. It's a two-dimensional grid-based thing. And you, you program by moving the program counter around in two-dimensional space instead of like just forward or jumping. 
on a linear space. Um, so anyway, that's sort of a weird aside, but that's the sort of thing I used to like to play with. Mm. Um, in fact, I wrote the first ever implementation of the Ook programming language for orangutans in Ruby. Uh, but these days, I guess I'm more interested in solving actual problems for people. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, early on, certainly some of the things we did in the Ruby community solved actual problems for programmers, um, like Ruby Gems, for example. Right. When we made that, that solved a big problem we all had and then, of course, caused a bunch of other problems, but that's life. So, yeah, I, I think probably I will be more likely to be a fast follower um, after something has gained some momentum and isn't a pain to deal with in the future. Hmm. So I, you had a really interesting blog post. Um, there's no date on it, but it's recent on your blog. Oh, yeah, there's a date. April. Oh, just came yesterday. Perfect. About who you want to hire. Oh, yeah. I've been thinking about that one for a long time, actually. But uh, do you have something specific that, that made it interesting to you? I, so for people who haven't seen it, which is probably going to be a number of people, you start off, you say, there's a person I want to work with. I can't find this person. I've literally searched the world and I can hardly find a trace. And you go on to sort of talk about the kind of person, like the traits of the kind of person that you are, are interested in working with. And, right. and all these traits were, it was interesting that all these traits are kind of like soft skills in a sense. It wasn't like, I want a guy that knows Ruby or this or that. Um, it's like everyone knows that when you take on a task, whether it's huge or scary or tiny and boring, you're going to see it through to the best of your ability. These are all sort of like higher level descriptions. Yeah. I think it's too easy to make a bulleted list of technical skills that you need. And it also doesn't really seem to predict success. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've hired people that are just extremely intelligent and obviously the smartest person in the room kind of people they don't they don't get anything done or they or they don't have the right commitment to the work or the right kind of work ethic or the right attitude to bring people up along with them hmm. and i would rather have someone uh who doesn't actually know the specific skills that we're looking for that has all these other traits so i was trying to list all the stuff as concretely as possible because i literally was thinking of a person you know, and, mm. and thinking of like, I need these exact things. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to list them so that I can explain it to someone. Why do you think you can't find that person? I don't know. I mean, like I said in my blog post, I know a few of them, but uh, they're people that I've worked with in the past. They're busy. I can't recruit them away from where they are because I hired them there, you know, mm-hmm. in some cases. Uh, but even, even in the ones that are in that small handful, like it gets really small when you look at the people who really match all these things. Mm. And, and yeah, I don't know. I think there's a, a, it's difficult to find someone who is really passionate about technology uh, and really intelligent, but doesn't mind slowing down for the people that aren't as smart as them and doesn't need to constantly prove how smart they are and push the technical boundaries at work. You know, like if you're if you're building an app in Rails, then mm-hmm. it would be great if you could just use all the Rails conventions. And I sort of made a reference to this here, mm-hmm. as opposed to being opinionated and deciding you need to make your own conventions or you need to do things differently because just you know Rails doesn't do it right. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just easier if something is good enough, especially if it's like an established thing that you're using. If you don't be- believe the framework you're using is right, then use another one or you know write your own or something. But if you're going to to put yourself in a context, then I think you should be humble enough to, uh, as I say, bend to the will of that thing that yeah. you've subjected yourself to. That one really jumped out at me because that's that's something that I, I'm I'm working on. I'm getting better with. Like I sometimes want to like take a stand and say, you know, the way that does this is wrong, and and we should do something about it. Except, you know, sometimes you just got to get stuff done and you got to say, well, we're using Rails and this is the model and therefore that's how we're going to do it. Yeah. And when I got into Rails, uh, it was created by this young 20s guy that had worked in PHP before. And the biggest thing that I took away from it is, yes, this kid can 
can give me a framework that like tells me prescriptively how to do a bunch of stuff I already know how to do potentially better than him. Hmm. And I should just go with it and get all these stupid decisions out of my way that I shouldn't have to be making. Like, sure. None of these things are important as long as it does it well enough. If it doesn't do it well enough, then hopefully you'll help fix the thing that you're using instead of replacing it. Hmm. Yeah, I've, um, I've noticed that the strong programmers I work with are, are willing to do that. And even at a, like a, a, a micro level where it's like, what are the conventions used on this app? What are the decisions we've made here that, as to the way we do things? Let's just follow those and keep going, even if I, there might be better ones. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's maintain that internal consistency. Right. So that's the difficult thing to find, I think, is all of these attributes where you want someone really experienced and with... Uh, and really intelligent, passionate, creative, but also humble and practical enough to not have to express it all the time. Hmm. Hmm. Do you have a favorite interview question when you're interviewing people? Oh, like when I'm interviewing someone for a job? Sure. That's a really hard question to ask. Um, I used to, like 10 years ago, I used to like to ask... Uh, impossible questions or improbable questions that like when I was in India interviewing people, my favorite one was I would get a whiteboard and say, there's no right answer to this, but show me how you would start thinking about modeling a system that simulates the traffic in Bangalore. And you could look out at, at it from you know the room where you're interviewing. It's insane. And, but it's not really insane because there are implicit rules and it's, it's almost like flocking behavior. Uh, and you know, it wasn't like a trick question because I would work with them on it. I like to collaborate on, on these sorts of interview questions with people and I don't want them to feel uncomfortable, but I just want to get into someone's head and see how they approach something difficult like this. Hmm. Uh, nowadays I have to admit I have interviewed so many people that I'm really tired of it. And, and I, <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite question, but the only way that I can make it tolerable is to literally try to get to know the person as a human being in the process hmm. the way you would if you were just meeting people to become friends with them. Um, otherwise, I don't know how many interviews I've done because I've been a hiring manager in so many situations where I've done mass recruiting and I'm, I'm so seriously done interviewing people in any kind of traditional sense. Hmm. Are you a little professionally burnt out on other things other than that? Uh, I don't know. I feel the opposite of burnt out these days. Hmm. I feel completely uh, energized by my work. In fact, I'm probably doing too much of it and risking burning out because I'm so excited about it. Hmm. Um, but I certainly have burnt out in the past. Like in 2006, I had a job that... It was a programming job. It was an early Rails project, and I worked so many hours there to ultimately trash the entire project after a year of like, desperate work toward a goal Ouch. that it took me, I think, three or four years to fully recover from the burnout from that one. Wow. But no, I'm, I'm not burnt out. I'm, I think probably the right description of it is I'm getting old and... <laughs> and uh, <laughs> You know, when you get old, there are things that you don't want to put up with anymore that you used to. Mm. Um, you know, and maybe some of that stuff is like, I don't want to deal with a programming language environment where the libraries don't just work when I download them. Going back to your question earlier, whereas in the early days of Ruby, I was happy to do that. Hmm. Now it's just irritating. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm still excited about other things. It's just not that. You know? hmm. Is there any, do you think there's any part of that which is better than your old attitude? Like, is there some sense in that you're sort of like battle hardened and this new attitude is superior to your old one? Uh, I would, um, I would like to believe that the new attitude is in almost always superior to my old one, but that might just be hubris. Hmm. Uh, I, I will say that. When I work with young, fired-up software developers, I, I both get energized by this sort of stuff, but I also sometimes get irritated because 
they want to try everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think the difference between me and that is like me now and that, because I totally remember being like that is I'm more focused on getting things done now. Hmm. And, and it's not like a, uh, a jaded type of attitude. I, I literally don't take joy out of building a new framework to do something that I could use another framework to do unless that new thing that I'm building is somehow uh, materially better than the thing I had before. But I remember there being a time I would love to start a new project and like a web project and build my own MVC framework. Like that's step one before I can write any code. You know? And now I need to talk to the database, so I'll build an ORM or you know whatever. Hmm. And I would never consider doing that now. Now that's obviously an exaggeration, but um, now I'm thrilled when I do something that makes like the rest of my team or the users' lives uh, better that, you know, that use the product I'm working on. And so from that perspective, I think my current attitude is better. That said, I probably am slowing down my technical learning as a result of this, this direction that, that I've gone in terms of um, you know, my attitude. But I don't see it as a negative thing. I definitely don't see it as like a burnout. It's really just more, I think, like I said, experience and, and age uh, hmm. and a focus on delivering things to end users more than experimenting. Hmm. Hmm. So I, I was in Denver a couple of weeks ago and I was, spent some time with Jeff Casimir. Oh. Uh, and we were, I'd, I'd let him know that we were interviewing you and we talked about you a little bit. Um, one of the things he told me was that he's, people say you are like the best mentor they're amazing to work for because you really care a lot about the people. Do you have any like particular particular strategies you use to help mentor people or did you just kind of get good at this by doing it a lot for a long time? Uh, I don't know. I'm glad to hear that he thinks that, uh, I, I don't know that I agree that I'm a great mentor, but I definitely agree that I care about people. Um, Mm. in fact, at living social, my job was really stressful at Living Social for me, um, mm. partially because I am a serious introvert. And there, you know, I had ultimately hundreds of people in my organization. And I would spend all day, every day talking to people. That's all. Mm. Um, and I told myself early on, this is going to be really hard. And the only way that it would be worth it in the end is if I make lasting, meaningful relationships with people which is also sort of like what I was talking about with interviews that, you know, if, if I can connect with people and, and make friends that are real, then like, that's more important than almost anything else I could do. I have a quote that I wrote down that Jeff said, okay. which is he doesn't give two shits about the business. He cares about the people. He's probably wrong about that. But if, if he wants to be wrong in that direction, I'm fine with it. Uh, I, I don't mind being mischaracterized that way. That makes sense. <laughs> so you do care about the business, but it, it is more about the people. It's the right th- the thrust of the idea is correct. I think ultimately, like there is a hierarchy, and it all boils down ultimately as you as you work through this hierarchy. When you get to the core of everything that matters, it's happiness, and it's like literally your own personal happiness because you can't really experience much outside of that. And then there are a bunch of healthy decisions you can make that lead to that. So somewhere along the way is the people, as he said, but somewhere before that is, and after that is probably the business, depending on what that means in context. So like, you know, in my current company, if the business is successful, we can provide a place or continue to provide a place that's great for these people to work that I care about. And we can also provide a product for people that, like, if you search for Wonderlist on Twitter, you'll see the word love constantly, which is really great. Hmm. You know, that's you want to inspire that kind of feeling in people. Um, all this stuff together, like, it's not a dichotomy: the business versus the people, and and they certainly feed each other. If you really care about the people and you take care of them in a company, they're going to do better work for the company. And if the company does well, it's better for the people that work there. Hmm. So, uh, where did you work before ThoughtBot, or are you are you having your first job at ThoughtBot? 
Uh, no, I, I worked at a cancer hospital called Dana-Farber, uh, mm-hmm. and I was on a small team. And our basic job was actually pretty awesome, was we'd go into different departments of the hospital and ask them what their process looked like and why it, it hurt, because it usually hurt. Um, and they would typically have a dozen people editing an Excel spreadsheet and a file cabinet full of folders some variant on that and Mm -hmm. we would come in and in just a couple of weeks give them a a rails app customized for what they needed that made their lives so much better Um, and it was kind of a dream job in that regard because like the the fruit was on the ground it wasn't even hanging it it was like you have paper files or like you have like this miserable system where 50 people are editing the same excel spreadsheet that's gigantic yeah, and it's not like you're taking away someone's mainframe app and replacing it with a web app, and then they go, well, it used to be faster. Right. Yeah, so the, these are people in, in real pain and having real struggles, and, and with not a ton of work or complexity, we could give them something so much better. And it was right. just, and, and seemed like heroes. And they're also helping people who are in literally real pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was interesting, too, because when I first started working there, I, I, it didn't really register to me that, that would, I would care about that. Um, like sort of the nonprofit and helping aspect. And then after I was there for not too long, it kind of did. Uh, so that was sort of a, a, a surprising side benefit. Like I, I thought I wasn't going to care that I would just care about the job, but then right. the fact that it was, it was doing good as a side benefit was actually really nice. Yeah, that really is great. That's, that's something that I liked about working at living social too. I mean, it's kind of hard to compare, um, it's really hard to compare anything with people helping those with cancer. But uh, I, I always felt great when Living Social could like help someone bootstrap or save their small business, mm-hmm. which happened more than you ever hear about. Because you know the, the press is, of course, enamored with uh, Schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but in reality, Living Social... Um, like in some cases, completely changed businesses and small business owners' lives for the better, and they therefore employed more people. And you know, it was it was a domino effect that spread out into the world. And when you hear those stories, it's really great that you can do something like that for people. Mm-hmm. So you've written about how strong you thought the Living Social team is and was. Uh, how did you build such a good team? Uh it started, I guess, with the team that was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, when we came in, there was a small group of people that uh, most of whom I had not heard of before. I had met a couple of them. You know, I met Aaron Battalion. He was part of the attraction for us to to go work there. Um, and I met Paul Barry. He's a speaker at various user groups and, and open source contributor. But I was pretty amazed by all these people I'd, I had never heard of and how great they were. And it wasn't just... Uh, technically good. There, there was certainly that, but it was also a lot of the stuff that I listed on my "Who I Want to Hire" blog post. Mm. So, and then we brought in the InfoEther team, um, which was you know, we got acquired two years ago. So uh, we felt that we had built a really great small team over ten years of being in business and very selective hiring. And. I think it was just those people, that collection of people made it possible to convince all the ones on our dream list that, hey, we have an opportunity where we have enough money that we can actually pay you to work with us. Um, A lot of the initial hires were people that I had wanted to work with for years. I was just looking for the right opportunity or, you know, even they had been wanting to work with me or us for years. So we seeded it with really great people that then attracted more great people. And, and literally most of the hires we did were uh, through referral and, and that kind of network effect. Hmm. So, you know, once you have Ben Schofield, Evan Phoenix, people like that, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to say, hey, we've already got Ben Schofield and Evan Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Don't you want to work with them? And pretty much everyone does for good reason. So then we get the people who you know, again, it's just another name, and it's not—it's not all just famous people or you know authors or speakers or whatever. It's—it's uh, it's those solid people that you want to work with over and over in your career. And you know, we got really lucky pulling those kinds of people in because we had built an environment that I think that people that started there felt comfortable bringing in the the kind of 
top of the list of people they'd want to work with again. Um, so yeah, that was it. It was fairly easy to do. And now the unfortunate thing is I left and now everyone I ever wanted to work with is, <laughs> you know, I, I left them there and I can't recruit them again. Um, but life is long. So someday I hope to cross paths with a lot of the same people again. Mm. Do you have another book in you? Uh, I think so. I think I won't be able to not write another book. Mm. But I don't know what it's about. What do you think? What should I write about? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, Passionate Programmer sums up a lot of really good, useful knowledge. Like, I, I don't know that a volume two... I don't know that you could write a volume two that would add a ton to it. Maybe you could. Maybe you've learned a lot since then. Um, but it seems like the heart of that is like you've covered that topic really well. Yeah. And you're not yeah, as, and, go ahead. And it's a, it's kind of like, um, something a motivational speaker would write, you know, it's a self-help book really. Mm-hmm. I don't think I should write two of those. <laughs> you're at your quota. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and really I've written two already because I wrote two editions of the passionate programmer and, and the, the first one was the, my job went to India book. Mm-hmm. And there's enough new content in The Passionate Programmer that I've essentially written that one twice. Hmm. So, yeah, and I were, don't know. Were you involved in Pickaxe early on, too? Uh, I was involved in the uh, Ruby 1.8 plus uh, Pickaxe, but I was just a minor contributor. Hmm. I Really, Dave Thomas, I guess he left me on the cover because he likes me. I don't deserve it, but it may even still have my name on there somewhere. I'm not sure. Hmm. But yeah, I was a co-author on um, the second edition and then, um, I guess, a couple of editions after that. Hmm. And, and, and you say you're sort of you're playing with new technology a little bit less, so it, it probably wouldn't be a book on the, the latest and greatest something or other. I don't know. You know, I, I guess... I really like what people like Martin Fowler do where the, you know the beauty of Martin Fowler is he he watches all this new stuff as it happens and he experiments with it and he's great at distilling it mm-hmm. into the stuff that you really need to know. Mm-hmm. Um and and I don't mean that in that he writes short books. He doesn't really, but he's really good at just taking all this abstract um you know uh, sea of junk and turning it into a way of thinking about a technology or a new type of technology. I would love to get good at doing that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is like, let's say it's asynchronous JVM related programming or functional programming topics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I mean, that's not even bleeding edge at this point. Closure has been around for several years. Scala too. Um, but I think there's still room to bring the rest of the world into that stuff. I agree. Yeah. I was watching yeah. some of Rich Hickey's talks the other night and just blown away. I'm, I'm really yeah. excited about this sort of new paradigm, or new-ish, not really new, but new-to-me paradigm. Yeah, and if you and I are saying this is new-ish, then probably 90% of software developers aren't even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, A lot of people are sitting around using Java, C-sharp, or you know, just now getting into Ruby because they're forced to, or whatever, mm-hmm. and they might enjoy learning this stuff, but it might be difficult for them. And so, you know, one thing I've learned uh, over years of writing, and literally from the first chapter of the first book I wrote, is that my audience is not people like you and people like me. You know, uh, there's a, and I don't mean that we're smarter than others, but. We are the kind of forward-thinking explorers. Hmm. It's it's the people who aren't. It's the people who think maybe I should think about this topic, and and they will go for a book to you know to try and dip their heels into it for the first time. Hmm. So I, I, anyway. have, I have a potential title for you if you if you go the sort of longer more if you go the route of writing about your your experience since the passionate programmer. Okay, the okay. grizzled programmer. <laughs> I'm afraid that I have uh, come off as being old and crusty in this conversation so far. <laughs> I haven't helped at that, actually. 
I should probably tell you about my new tattoos so that we can make it not seem like I'm an old person. Yeah. Are, are tattoos young like, and hip still? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. And even so, they don't translate to an audio podcast very well. Mm. Well, well we, can, we can link to it in the show notes. Oh, okay. Your great. awesome ruby tattoo. There's no ruby on it, actually. Hmm. Is there? No. No, but there is the God Mode avatar from Doom. You have a tattoo? Is this for real? Yeah, I literally have my whole my whole right forearm is covered in ink now. I did not know that. I missed that in my research. I will send you a picture. All right. <laughs> this is a perfect segue. Um, do you have any regrets? <laughs> uh, well, fortunately, the tattoo is not something to regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I waited until I was almost 40 to do it. And I started it with a tribute to uh, our uh, 15th wedding anniversary. So, therefore, I could not regret it. Okay nor be judged um but regrets hmm no i don't think so actually i really don't that's that's lucky yeah uh no literally none even even some of the things that i consider to be the biggest failures along the way they're always the things you learn the most from Hmm. i think what i would regret is if i actively treated people poorly or if I did things that were that I knew were morally wrong and of course that's subjective anyway but I would regret that hmm. do you have any irrational fears about the future no <laughs> uh, no all of my fears about the future are irrational uh, no I don't think so I'm not afraid I'm not regretful I, I have spent a lot of time in my life learning not to worry about the future or regret the past. Mm. How do you do that? Practice. Uh, Hmm. Like literally, I'm I'm not saying that in some sort of uh, platitudinal way. I, I had a lot of problems in my younger years with um, depression and specifically bipolar disorder. Hmm. So I couldn't not focus on uh, controlling my mind. Hmm. And uh, what I did was uh, hypnosis at the time. Like I saw a hypnotherapist who was a psychologist as well. Mm-hmm. And that became self-hypnosis, which is exactly the same as meditation, but meditation sounds like something hippies do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of practiced meditation, which then led to, the, to my normal waking life. Uh, and... What that means is really just kind of constant awareness of the perceptions that you allow yourself to make. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Totally. Your, your automatic thoughts. Yeah, exactly. In the cognitive like, behavioral therapy world. I wouldn't know anything about that, but okay. that sounds right. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but you always have this, like, uh, I, I think of it as like a monkey sitting on your shoulder spouting crap into your ear about what you should be thinking Mm-hmm. And and most of us, including me, like the tendency is you just listen and you believe. So if someone says something bad about you, it tells you you should feel bad. You feel bad, and that's what I learned. And it makes it's obvious, right, that mm. no one can control the way you feel personally, but it takes a lot of practice to actually put that um, into practice. I hate using the word practice twice like that, but mm. it takes a lot of like intentional practice of recognizing those things, scrutinizing your own perception of a situation, and then letting it go. Absolutely. There's a, so the thing I refer to, cognitive behavioral therapy, is, was based around this idea, which is uh, there's this therapist working with a lot of depressed people, and he realized that almost all these depressed people shared a characteristic, which is they had overwhelmingly negative thoughts about themselves and the world. And these thoughts were sort of automatic, and they just sort of happened, and they didn't question them. And when he actually got them to capture them and realize they happened and question them, they weren't depressed anymore. They were able to sort of correct these or like make these thoughts more realistic and correct them and was remarkably effective at treating their depression. Yeah, that makes sense then. Why do you know about that? Uh, because my mom's a therapist. Ah, okay. Yeah. So therefore, you don't think therapy is hogwash as a lot of us have been trying. Oh, God, to no. Absolutely not. 
I think it's extremely helpful. Probably younger people are less likely to think that automatically. I think that's true. Yeah. I have I know that like when I started going to a therapist, it was because my parents got divorced when I was a kid. And at that point, only crazy people went to therapists, you mm-hmm. know. Or at least that's what you would think. It was never like on television that anyone would you know, normal people and like characters in T V shows would go. Only Woody Allen would go to therapists on TV. <laughs> So <laughs> there was a stigma, and now I guess there isn't anymore. I, th- I think to the benefit of, of everybody's mental health, there's less of a stigma around that. Yeah. So do you, do you meditate still? Not really, but not because I don't believe in it. It's just because I'm lazy. Hmm. Do you ever try it? Uh, yeah, I do. So you actually meditate? Uh, I do it occasionally. My do longest you- stretch is still like eight or nine minutes. That seems okay. Yeah. But it's, um, it's, it's remarkably calming and focusing. Yeah. And, and uh, also difficult and tiring at yeah. the same time. Absolutely. It's all those things. At, at Magic Ruby in the beginning of 2010 <clears throat> at, at Disney World, Mike Gayhard, who was at Pivotal Labs at the time mm-hmm. and then at Living Social and then again at Pivotal Labs, he did a talk about meditation for programmers, which really had nothing to do with programmers. It was just about meditation, but he mm-hmm. was trying to convince everyone it was a good idea. And he had the entire audience try it. I think it was five or ten minutes. Mm-hmm. It was a really bizarre experience, but also really good. Because um, it seemed like everyone actually tried it in the audience. But it's really interesting to be at a programming conference and have everyone meditating together. Silently, yeah. So I, I was at another conference, I actually can't remember which one, where he did the same thing as sort of like a lightning talk. And oh. he did it right before I went up to speak. And I have never been quite so calm on stage. That's really interesting. So you participated in it before I, you I did, you yeah. Spoke. Yep. I don't know if I could have before I speak. Hmm. It was awesome. I, that's, that's, I haven't done it since, but it was great. The, the thing I've been doing recently is power posing before my talks. I watched this awesome <laughs> TED talk on this woman who basically found that if, if you stand in a way that you take up a lot of space with like your hands on your hips or like your hands outstretched, like you're like saying victory kind of thing, um, you feel more confident. It's like one of these weird uh, kinesthetic things that actually affect your brain. And so when I'm getting nervous and which basically happens inevitably, um, I will basically stand off to the side and like get really tall, put my hands on my hips or like go in the bathroom and be like victory and like just psych myself up. And that actually works. Huh. I'm going to try that at Railsbury. Yeah. So if you see me looking funny, that's why. Yeah. It's, it, it's worked for me. I think if you threw in meditation before that, you'd be unstoppable. I'm going to do it. I'm going to meditate and then I'm going to do some weird victory pose. (laughs) In fact, I should do it during my talk. I'll start by meditating. (laughs) On stage? On stage, and then I'll do a victory pose, Mm -hmm. and then I will finish with some content. I think that would be uh, fitting at Railsbury. So at the beginning of my Railsbury talk, I had everybody stand up and do some sort of calisthenics because we had been sitting for a long time. So you went last year? I did, yes. And you spoke last year and you speak this year? Yes. Oh, is there something specific about Railsbury that makes you want to go speak twice? Uh, it's a fantastic conference. It's had more character and heart and soul than any other conference I went to ever. Interesting. It's just well, I can't wait to go. Yeah, there's there and like the organizers had so many little details that made it feel like a fun family reunion kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard a family to family reunion with people you don't know. Yeah. It just felt whimsical and beautiful and like touching and heartfelt. And it was just, it was just kind of an amazing experience. Hmm. Beautiful, whimsical, touching. It, yeah. You should, they have a video on their site, I think of the, of last year's conference with like highlights from it. And it kind of gives you a little bit of the feel, but you're going to see it anyway in a couple of weeks. I will, but I'm also just thinking a, a technical conference could be such a lifeless, dead thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the way you've described it, I think that sums up how I wish I could do all of my work, that someone would describe it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, last question for you. Okay. What do you hope will be your legacy? 
That's an interesting question because the nerd in me says, well, what do you mean by legacy? <laughs> but I think you mean, what, what do I hope I will leave behind that people might remember? Yes. Uh, hmm. I could think of some... So if I were going to say something that is uh, pompous and arrogant and unreasonable, which I might as well go ahead and do, but I'll, I'll say this beforehand so you won't think I'm unreasonable. Hmm. Uh, I would like to somehow uh, change the mindset of developers, at least on average, so that people consider software development to be more of a human endeavor and less of a technical endeavor. And I would like to, I would like to be someone who notably inspired people who then went and inspired other people and you know so on and so on recursively hmm. for years to come that's kind of vague but no i think i think that'll I, do I, that's what it would be i could live with that too so um if people wanted to get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out to you is there a good way for them to do that yeah you can send me email um it's pretty easy to find my email address on the web but it's also chad at chadfowler.com and I'm on Twitter at chadfowler um, you probably don't want to follow me there because I usually just post nonsense but you could you could tweet to me there anyway okay well thanks very much for chatting today it was, uh, it was a lot of fun I, I enjoyed it yeah I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you in person for the first time yeah likewise and we can power pose together Yes. In fact, we will power pose together and someone will video it. And, and I say video because I want an awkward video of us posing and standing still, but like trying to be still. I think we can do that. Okay. We have the technology. Can we post it on the internet? Uh, I think and, we can, can and should. Can we link it to this podcast? Uh, we can go back and edit the show notes. Okay. Yeah. I know this will come out before the conference. It but will. We, we most certainly should. So like if if you are a person right now that's listening to this in the future after Railsbury, which is late you should April. go look. Late April of two thousand thirteen. You should go look in the show notes for us power posing together in Krakow. Mm. Fortunately the show notes are not immutable. Although Rich Hickey would be disappointed. <laughs> Speaking of show notes. If you wanted to ask us the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 44. Today's podcast was recorded by Anna Mariola, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Actually, Chad recorded this one. Uh, Thanks for listening. And thanks for stopping by, Chad. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.